0: I was told that there was a, a straw poll, I suppose, that was taken recently about me, and uh, I was a little disappointed in it, I have to be honest with you. Because it, it said that consensus has now shown that I have to acknowledge that Louisville lost yesterday in football. And as I had reflected on that and was disappointed thoroughly in those who conducted the straw poll, not surprised, but disappointed nonetheless, it hit me that now Louisville and Kentucky football have at least one thing in common, which is the number one. One loss for Louisville and one win (laughs) for Kentucky. Sort of ironic. Which is exactly what we'll be talking about this morning, the ironies of life. What an interesting segue. Thank you for those who conducted the straw poll. You just helped the sermon tremendously. That was great. If you think of the word irony, I'm sure there are some things that come to mind. It is actually a misunderstood term. In popular culture, we know it as one thing. But according to its actual definition, the word irony is is something, at least most of the time this is the way that it's defined, is a statement implying a meaning that is opposite of what is literally said. So you say something implying the opposite of what your words actually say. Now, we most think of irony when it comes to what we'd call maybe cosmic or, or life situational irony, which basically, for us, what we think of is, that's not what I expected to happen. Things are different than the anticipated outcome. What was expected, even overwhelmingly expected, is totally different. There's something weird about that. There can also be some humorous forms of irony. I, I've asked Daniel if he'll pull up a couple of different things for me. Uh, I came across some signs this week that I thought were kind of ironic, or at least we could think that they are. They're sort of humorous. Pull up the first one there. Uh, This is at a local Starbucks. If you need assistance uh, accessing our internet, please visit our website. (laughs) If you think about that, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If you can't get on the internet, how do you visit the website? But apparently that person uh, on duty that day was at the low end of the totem pole on the pay scale. So... Uh, anyway, and then the, the next one I, I think is, is pretty good as well. Maybe you've seen something like this as you drive around. Uh, there's a stop sign, but it says no stopping any time. <laughs> what do you do? You break the law either way you go. There's no, it's a no-win situation for you right there. You cannot stop there, but you're compelled to stop there. And then my favorite that I came across this week, uh, by far, uh, this, is, this is just great. Um, the, the next one, Psychic Fair canceled Due to Unforeseen Circumstances. Let that sink in for a second. Just, a, they're, 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 they probably, probably won't have another one, at least that's said. But you know, just uh, those things are, are kind of funny. They're sort of ironic, we would we would say. They they, they, they they there's something kind of funny about that. I wanna I wanna talk to us today, based upon the scripture, about some things that are that are ironic in our lives, some Some things that aren't quite what we expect them to be. It's sort of weird, a little different than what you would think. The ironies of life is what we'll talk about this morning. And how do we deal with those? Because we all face them. If you've got your Bible handy, please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. If you've been with us over the last several weeks, by now you hopefully have some familiarity with the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. And if not, please don't let that stop you from turning with us. I hope you brought a copy of the Bible with you. If you don't have one, let me know. We'd be happy to get one for you on behalf of the church. Ecclesiastes is right after the book of Proverbs, which is really toward the middle of the Bible. So if you turn to the middle and you kind of, you can get close. But we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. The end of chapter 9 and the very beginning of chapter 10 is what we'll look at this morning. Ecclesiastes, of course, is a book that we've found so far, I think, to be extremely practical very relevant to our lives today, but a little bit weird in some cases. It seems that the the primary teacher in this book is fixated upon death. He can't get it out of his mind that we're all going to die, that that ultimately most of the stuff that we pursue in life is meaningless because we'll die and be forgotten, and that's it. Now, we understand that the, the author of the book constructs these quotes from this teacher or preacher in such a way that that we have to come face to face with what would it be like to operate and to live as if God did not exist, as if this life were all that there is. And so we have to come face to face with that. And then in the end, of course, as we'll see in a few weeks, he draws us back to the fact that God is there, that this life is not all there is, and that in this life we must fear and trust God in order to navigate it successfully. So this morning, uh, we'll pick up on another passage that's dealing with the stark reality that life is short and that we as humans... We have, we have some limitations. There are some ironies in life. So look with me in uh, chapter 9, verse 11. Again I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, or bread to the wise, or riches to the discerning, or favor to the skillful. Rather, time and chance happen to all of them. For a man certainly does not know his time, like a fish caught in a cruel net, like, or like birds caught in a trap. So people are trapped in an evil time, As it suddenly falls on them. I have observed that this also is wisdom under the sun, and it is significant to me. There was a small city with a few men in it. A great king came against it, surrounded it, and built very large siege works against it. Now a poor wise man was found in the city, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. And I said, Wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. The calm words of the wise are heeded more than the shouts of a ruler over fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner can destroy much good. And then chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil ferment and stink. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. You see at the very beginning of this some things that don't turn out the way you expect them to. You look back in chapter 9, verse 11. You see several different examples of things that, well, you think this is the way it should go, but it doesn't turn out that way. In fact, what he says is the race is not to the swift. It's not always the fastest runner who wins the race. Now, you've probably seen that before. You've probably seen a, a, a team or a person competing in some event, and somehow, even though they're the most skilled and the most talented, they don't win at all. You've seen that over and over in sports competitions, and so on. Then he says the battle is not to the strong. Not always is it that the, the, the side with the most firepower wins. Sometimes it's the good cause that wins, and we've seen that through history. And he says not, not only that, but it's, it's not always that bread and riches go to those who are the smartest or most prepared. We know people that uh, aren't necessarily the smartest people in the world, not necessarily the most prepared. They just happen to be in the right place at the right time, and they strike it rich. They just have opportunities come their way, and for whatever reason on that day, they take advantage of it. And that's just the way that it is. Some of you may be watching the series that concludes this evening on the History Channel called The Men Who Built America. Now, those guys are pretty sharp, Vanderbilt, and Rockefeller, and Carnegie, and J.P. Morgan, Henry Ford. These guys are they're pretty sharp, but they also just so happened to be in the right place at the right time, and the right opportunity came their way. And I'm sure there were those around them that were maybe a little smarter maybe even a little more prepared that just didn't have that opportunity come their way and then it says the favor doesn't always go to the skillful not always is it the one who deserves it most that is elevated and promoted You probably see that at work if you are going to work every day in a company where there is promotion sometimes there are other factors at play that have nothing to do with you earning what you're receiving sometimes you're passed over for someone who may not deserve it. So those are the ironies, the examples of things that happen that that really we think, wait a minute, that shouldn't happen. The fastest person should always win the race. It's just the way that it should be. The one with the strongest army should always win the battle. The smartest and most prepared should always receive what that should deserve. And the person who is the most skillful, the most deserving, the best person for the job should be favored. But unfortunately, no, that's not true. And in fact, he says in verse 12, for man certainly does, does not know his time. Right after that, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 11, look at that. Rather, time and chance happen to all of them. For man certainly does not know his time. Like a fish caught in a cruel net or birds caught in the trap. So people are trapped in an evil time and it suddenly falls on them. He just makes the point again that we have no idea when death is coming. We may think and have some inclination that in some cases it may be drawing near but we don't know when it's actually coming. It can be very surprising, and it has been for many people. Certainly, we see that in our world today. He draws the analogy like a fish caught in a net or a bird caught in the trap. All of a sudden, that descends upon us, and we did not see it coming. Death and unexpected events limit what we can do. And he says there's no way to, to predict the unexpected, talking about that there's no way truly to know when that net will be falling on you Time and chance, he says, these unexpected events. Those things happen all the time. You know that. They're unpredictable. They're inescapable. They're very sudden. They can throw off course even the fastest, smartest, best person that we know of. The most skilled person in, in any particular line of work or stage of life can be thrown off, as you well know, by something unexpected. You're, there's no way you could have planned for that. No way you could have anticipated it. And you have no way to now deal with what has happened that is unexpected. I really believe that you could also add not only that that death and unexpected events sort of culminate and conspire against us to not all, to not always produce the outcome we'd like, but I think in that uh, there are other people that sometimes get in our way. There are other people that can be the reason why things don't work out in our lives. Even when we're the best, the smartest, the strongest, have the best plans, understand the most, other people often get in the way and sometimes deliberately. You've probably faced that in your line of work through the years. You may have had people who got in the way of what should have been something you could have accomplished, and maybe they did it on purpose. Or they just do something unexpected that ruins what you've been attempting to accomplish for several months or years. Other people can sometimes get in the way. He's talking to us about the ironies of life. There are things that happen that we don't expect. He gives us the reasons that death, unexpected events, prevent the outcome that we think is guaranteed. And then he gives us an example, which is great, in verses 14 and 15. A small city with just a few men in it. A great king, kind of picture this in your mind, get a mind picture of this. A great king comes against it, surrounds the city, and builds a large siege works against it. Now what you have to understand is back during this time, you had a little city, a little wall around it. And if you wanted to truly defeat someone, you surrounded their city and prevented anything from coming in and anything from going out. And the siege works are built up around it. And you just over time would wait for the perfect opportunity, as he said before, to catch them like a fish or like a bird when they were worn down. So the irony here is that no one knows what to do. Now, a poor wise man, verse 15, was found in the city. And the surprising outcome is he delivered the city by his wisdom. Now, we know that in our world today, most of the time, if you don't have much money, you're not going to be listened to. That's the bottom line. You may not like that, you may not think that's right, but it's just the bottom line. Those with more money, more prestige, more honor, more reputation, whatever you want to say, those are the people that we listen to most, whether or not they have any sense whatsoever. It's just the way that it is. Now, I won't call you out, but if you are a watcher of reality television, particularly some few shows that highlight people who are simply famous for being famous, and if in any way you allow them to influence your life, you're just giving in right here. Those who are rich and seemingly famous are the ones we listen to. The poor folks, sometimes who can be the wisest, are ignored. This person, though, comes and rescues the city. Imagine this. They find this one poor man in the city who's got all kinds of wisdom, and the, and the, the people of the city consult and say, we've got a king who's out to get us. What should we do? And you can imagine the scenario. Maybe he's been sitting back and his and just kind of paying attention to what's going on and realizing how unwise some of the actions they've been taking have been. And he says, you know, you should do this. And If I were you and, and your situation, I probably would do this and, and this might work as well. And they do all that and everything works perfectly. And the city is spared and rescued. But then he's forgotten. The unexpected result at first is that there's a poor wise man who rescues this city when all the other folks of prestige couldn't figure it out. And then the surprising end is you think, where's his trophy? Where's his parade? Where's his celebration? And instead, he's forgotten. You now, There would be nice if there were a trophy given away for every wise decision that prevents lots of trouble. and. Uh, made uh, some great help in a tremendous way. I'm sure your shelf at home will be full of trophies for how wise you are and all the great decisions that you've made. But most of the time, people just go on. You know that? Even in your family, if you think about it, you've probably given advice to folks and you've tried to help them, and they just go on. Thank you. They, they owe you a trophy in a parade. Just want you to know that. You cash that in at some point, tell them they owe you a trophy in a parade. Most of the time they just go on, they forget who the MVP of the whole ordeal was. And that was you. You were the MVP. The person who steps up the most when it's most important and most needed is often the first person to be forgotten. I looked up uh, some World Series MVPs, Baseball World Series MVPs. Now, you you probably recognize uh, some of these, particularly those who grew up uh, and were baseball watchers uh, in an era of maybe the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Some of these Baseball World Series MVPs wound up going to the Hall of Fame. Here are some of the Hall of Fame members who were also at one point a World Series MVP. Whitey Ford, Sandy Koufax, Bob Gibson, Frank Robinson, Brooks Robinson, Roberto Clemente, Reggie Jackson, Raleigh Fingers, Johnny Bench, Willie Stargell, Mike Schmidt, Paul Molitor. Names that if you have any reference whatsoever on baseball back during that time, you probably recognize at least one or two of those. But many names are forgotten. These are also World Series MVPs. Johnny Padres, Lou Burdett, Bob Turley, Larry Sherry. It may sound like people that live down the street from you. Gene Tennis, Steve Yeager, Ray Knight, Jose Rijo, Scott Brocious, Jermaine Dye, and for you Cardinal fans, David Eckstein. Little David Eckstein was a World Series MVP. How many people outside the St. Louis Cardinal family remember David Eckstein? Probably not too many. But it just proves that even in something like that, that it's not not everyone who has great value is always recognized and remembered or celebrated forever. Now, that may not seem fair to you. You may say, well, the fastest, strongest, smartest, most prepared, hardest working, most productive worker, that person should be the one who advances, is recognized, who always wins. But reality shows us that that doesn't happen. There, there may be something more to the situation that meets the eye. Now, you can, can view that as very unfair. You can get extremely angry about it, or you can realize that there is something better, something better than being the fastest and the strongest and the smartest and so on. Ultimately, the the truth is that things don't go the way that we want or expect them to go. Things don't always go according to plan. Those are the ironies of life. That's the first part of what he's showing to us. Now, what we think quite often that we need in the midst of facing those ironies is exactly what won't solve the problem. If you find that you say, well, I've lost the race, so to speak, I just need to get faster. Well, then the same axiom is true, that the race isn't always to the swift. You may think that you just need more strength. Well, I just, I just need to work harder. I need to get better at what I'm doing. Or maybe I need more education or more information. I didn't know enough. We have more access to information and education than ever before, so you can get it. Or maybe you just need to get better people around you, have more authority, or whatever it may be in your situation. But none of these, even if you have more of them than anything else, can stop the realities that the teacher calls time and chance. You can be the smartest, fastest, and you can get better at all those things. You can be the most prepared. You can have all that you need, but you cannot stop what the author calls time and chance. Death and unexpected events are going to happen. And you can't stop those just because of how good you are at navigating life. So what we need is not more speed and more strength and more smarts and more information and better people around us. What we really need, what, what the great ironies of life require, is great wisdom. What Instead of just more speed and strength and education and information, the ironies of life demand and require great wisdom. I want to show this to you as the teacher kind of holds it out for us. Look at verse 16. He said, wisdom is what? Better than strength. He's already talked about strength. Um, you don't always win the battle and so on. But he does, he does admit that the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not often heeded. Now, but that doesn't mean that wisdom is not better. He says, wisdom is better than strength. Look at verse 17. The calm words of the wise are heeded more than the shouts of a ruler over fools. You kind of picture this. You've got the ruler and the mob. And he's trying to tell them what to do and just screaming at them. And they're screaming back. And the one little wise man walks up to him and says, Hey, uh, can I have a minute? And they go over into a quiet room and begins to talk and just very calmly present the case for what he thinks ought to happen. And and the king begins to ponder it and realizes that in, in calmness, in sanity, this man has presented to him something that is much better than trying to rally the mob and get everybody convinced of the idea. But he says that those kinds of words are heeded they're listened to they're followed more than the shouts and then he says verse 18 wisdom is better than weapons of war goes back to the poor wise man in his city surrounded by this incredible army and great king wisdom outwits those people and they are delivered you realize that through the wisdom literature of the bible if you take job psalms proverbs and ecclesiastes and maybe include a little bit of song of solomon the hero of, of the, the wisdom literature, all, that th- all those books combined, is the person who lives by true, godly wisdom that comes from Scripture. The hero is not the fastest or the strongest or the smartest. It's the fool in the wisdom literature that lives by wisdom that comes from himself. It says, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him, the Bible says or any other source but God and His Word. you living by your own wisdom. The Bible says you're a fool. You live by God's wisdom. No matter how rich or poor you are, you are in line with that hero of the wisdom literature. Now, in today's world, the New Testament shows us that the heroes of our faith are still those who live by God's wisdom as it's revealed in Scripture. The fools are those who are trying to get wisdom on their own or from some TV talk show or from politicians or entertainers or sports stars or anybody that we think we might learn something from. You won't find God's kind of wisdom from those people most of the time. You'll find it only in the scripture and it's only biblical wisdom that will help you navigate the ironies that you'll face in life. So if it's wisdom that we need, not more strength, not more knowledge, not more speed, whatever, if it's wisdom that we need, what's that wisdom all about? I want to show you what I believe he, he, he gives us here as the essence of biblical wisdom. The first thing that the, the, the essence of biblical wisdom involves is faith. Again, I saw, verse 11, under the sun, that the race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, or the bread to the wise, or riches to the discerning, or favor to the skillful. Rather, time and chance happen to all of them. For man certainly does not know his time, like a fish caught in a cruel net. We're like birds caught in a trap. So people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly falls on them. What are you going to do in response to that? You, You can deny that that's true, and then you can get up tomorrow and go about your daily business and realize, you know what, that really is true. You can assume that things like luck and chance really are possible, that things are just random, that they don't happen for any particular reason whatsoever, they're not connected to anything or anyone. You can assume that's true. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as luck or chance. There is no lucky charm, no horoscope, no superstition that you need to be following. Our confidence as believers in Jesus Christ is that God has all of this under control. Absolutely, 100% under His control. Even when you're the fastest and you don't win the race. Even when you're the strongest and you lose the battle. Even when you're the smartest and most prepared and you are most deserving and you get passed over. Even then, in the ironies of life, faith is required to trust that even then God is still in control, that even then He can be trusted. And because death may come upon you suddenly, because unexpected events will happen, you need an anchor in life, and the only anchor that never fails, that always holds, the Bible says, is God Himself. Our faith is not based upon time and chance and random events, but based upon God Himself. So we trust God daily in every decision that we make. Believing that His will is best for us even if we lose the race. Even if we lose that battle. Even if we're passed over. Even if it seems to be different from what we would expect to happen. Our faith doesn't ignore reality in any way, but it uses that reality to cause us to trust God even more than we do. Since death is unavoidable and life is very unpredictable, the only safe course that you can take in life is to follow Jesus Christ. step by step, by step, fully surrendered to him, walking by faith in the word of God. So we don't depend upon luck or chance. We depend upon God himself. We trust God's promises even when there is no explanation, no human rational explanation for what just happened, even when the race is lost, even when the battle is lost, even when you don't get what you expected. The living wisely, the essence of biblical wisdom, begins with faith in God who is our creator and our savior. It continues with something that may sound a little bit odd, but it continues with anonymity. If you want to have the essence of biblical wisdom, you have to be content and committed to being anonymous if that's what God calls you to. I'll be honest with you, this is difficult because it goes against human nature. We all want to be elevated and recognized and appreciated for what we do and who we are and so on and so forth. But look at verses 13 to 16. I have observed that this also is wisdom under the sun, and it is significant to me. There was a small city with a few men in it. A great king came against it, surrounded it, and built large siege works against it. Now, a poor wise man was found in the city, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. And I said, Wisdom is better than strength. The wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. As I said before, it would appear as if this wise man, though he was poor, he deserved some type of honor. But he's forgotten, and things go back to the way they were, just as they were before he rescued the city. This man proved to be the most valuable person in the whole town, and yet no one even remembered who he was probably because he's poor, nobody cared about him. Certainly wealth, as I've mentioned, is impressive to people, but it's often those who are less impressive. Those, unfortunately, are the people who are ignored or forgotten, no matter how valuable they are to a city, a company, an organization, a school, a church, a team, whatever it may be. The poor man is really impressive here, though, if you think about it. Put yourself in his shoes. He's been there in his his place where he lives, maybe a tent or a hut or something like that. And watching what's going on in the town, he knows what's happening. He may be poor, but he's, but he's not stupid. And he understands what's going on, and one day they, they come to his door. And they, they tell him, hey, we, we've heard that you have some understanding, that you kind of get things in life, and we wonder if we could talk with you. We've tried all of our other options, and nothing has really worked. And as you can tell, this king with his great army is still surrounding the city, and we're close to caving in. Put yourself in his shoes for just a minute. How would you leverage that situation? If you operate according to human nature, you'll say, okay, that, that's fine. Um, what's in it for me? What, what will be given to me for an exchange of my wisdom? Or he might have said, and this would be very easy to do, he could have said, well, you know, if you didn't care about me before now, why do you care about me when things are going bad? You know, you've overlooked me for years, and I've been just as wise then as I am now. Why do you come knocking on my door now? Or he could have said, you know, i got nothing to lose. If the city goes down, I'm poor anyway. Who cares? I'll, I'll just try something. But he doesn't do any of that. We have no record of the conversation that takes place, but we certainly don't have a record of the fact that he was offended, he's upset, He's calling on them to now honor him because of how great that he is. He just does his best, serves the people, and moves off the scene. Extremely hard to do. Don't don't miss just the concept that this is very difficult to live in anonymity, to just simply do what God has called you to do, whether you are ever recognized for it or not. I realize that for some, you may say, I'm not worried about being recognized, I'm past that stage in life, but there are people here today who are desperate to be recognized for who they are and what they have done. And I'll let you know that is a perfectly human thing to do. And it's only the wisdom of God, knowing that it doesn't matter if you're recognized, as long as God is exalted, it's only the wisdom of God that can help you be anonymous and be okay with it. Some. Some here today are fighting that. And you don't maybe even recognize it as that, but you're fighting it. Because no one recognizes who you are and what you can do and how wonderful you are to everyone. And You've been given no reward. You've not been recognized. What you've done has not been taken notice of. And it's obvious that people just are going to return to their lives and you return to your life and they don't care, really, that you just bailed them out big time. They don't care really how valuable you are in their lives. So in the end, this guy is undervalued. He's underpaid. And somebody else probably got the credit for what he did. Somebody else probably got the raise or the promotion that this guy deserved. Don't think it's just a Bible story. I wonder, would you be okay with that? Would I be okay being this guy? We live in a world that does not reward biblical wisdom. Are you okay? Are you okay living for the Lord, serving other people, even if it means that you're never recognized for it? You want to hit the essence of biblical wisdom, the essence of walking with God, this is included. Are you willing to trust God as the one who will reward you, even if the reward never comes in this life? Those are tough questions. I write those down, and I don't have somebody out there in mind. I I have myself in mind. These are real questions for all of us to answer. Even if you live in anonymity until you die, are you okay serving the Lord that way? Are you willing to be content in the fact that you did the will of God, that you served others well, that you did the best you could, even when others get the praise and the glory and the money and the honor that you deserve? That's what the example of this poor, wise man shows us. That if we truly have our lives enveloped by the Lord, we'll be people of faith and we'll be people that are anonymous if that's what God wants us to do. And thirdly, we'll be people of devotion. Look at verse 18 of chapter 9. Keep your bulletin handy there. I'm going to ask you to write something else down in just a minute. Look at verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. All right, all I need is great wisdom, and I'll win every battle. But one sinner can destroy much good. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil ferment and stink, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. It only takes one person to mess everything up for an organization. It only takes one person in the middle of a battle to really mess everything up for the whole army. It only takes, as you well know, one small part of your body that you don't completely understand, your appendix, to cause tremendous pain and require surgery. One small little thing can go wrong, and just the same, it only takes a little foolishness to ruin a lifetime of wisdom. You see that all the time. We saw it this past week with our CIA director, David Petraeus whose name is now public for all the wrong reasons. may not have even known who he was. But a man whose reputation was built for so many years, and I'm sure he'd tell you the same thing. Because of a little foolishness that he allowed into his life, that led him into sin, he is now disgraced as a person, not through his career, but as a person. How sad. But the Bible says, take heed lest you also fall. I don't hold him up to tear him down. I hold him up as an example to say it can happen to anyone regardless of how fast, how strong, how smart you may be. A little foolishness will ruin a lifetime of wisdom. It unravels quickly. So the essence of biblical wisdom is found and and founded upon a complete devotion to Jesus, a life completely surrendered to him where you say, I will root out all foolishness. I'll get rid of it all because I know it can tear me down. The essence of biblical wisdom, which is required to navigate the ironies of life, is found in faith, trusting that God has it all under control, found in anonymity, knowing that I'll just serve the Lord no matter what, even if I'm forgotten, and found in devotion, there will be no foolishness, no sin that I allow to take hold in my life. Our faith, I just referenced, is not strengthened because of us. Our contentment with being anonymous isn't, isn't from our own human nature, And our devotion isn't to a cause, but it's to a person, to Jesus Christ himself. I want you to know that that the Bible makes it clear that Jesus has faced everything that we will deal with in life. If you look even at the temptation of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4, the first temptation, Satan comes along and says, hey, you're hungry after not eating for 40 days and 40 nights. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'll have faith in my heavenly Father to meet my needs. Satan then tempts him again and says, hey, won't you jump off this high point of the temple just to prove who you are and show everybody you're the Messiah and kind of make a spectacle here. Get some fame for yourself. Don't go through life anonymous, Jesus, Satan says. Show everybody who you are. Jesus says, no, 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 <laughs> you're not going to put God to the test. I'm content to have God give me glory and fame when he says it's time. And Jesus went on to serve and to die for people who didn't recognize who he was, who didn't care who he was, and in essence forgot who he was. The third temptation, Satan comes back to him and says, Look, all the kingdoms, all the nations, I'll give them all to you if you just bow down and worship me. The ironic part of that is those things already belong to Jesus. They were rightfully his, the nations, the kingdoms. And there's a shortcut offered to him. You can get it if you'll just compromise a little devotion to God the Father. And Jesus says, no, 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 (laughs) get out of here. I will not compromise I will not allow any foolishness into my life. You see that kind of wisdom, that kind of operation from Jesus, and you recognize that it can only come to your life from him that way. So those who need wisdom this morning must pursue Jesus for it. It's only in being transformed by his death, by his resurrection, that true faith can come into your life, that you can be content with anonymity, that you can avoid the sinful foolishness that can destroy you. So this week, here's what I want you to write down. Three things according to those three that you see on the screen. You will encounter, all right, you will encounter something this week that was unexpected, something that is sort of an irony in your life. The outcome does not match what you predicted. So, you will need wisdom. Let me make it four things. First of all, pray for wisdom. And I mean that. God, if you don't give me anything else, give me wisdom. What did Solomon ask for when the Lord offered him anything he could have? He said, God, give me wisdom. So, pray for wisdom. And in praying for wisdom, commit to trust and have faith in the Lord, even when things don't go your way, when it's unfair. When it's unexpected. Pray for wisdom. Commit to faith. Serve wherever you are and whoever you're around with nothing expected in return. You may get up and go to work tomorrow or be in your home tomorrow, be around friends and family this week. I don't know. Serve wherever you are and serve whomever you're around with nothing expected in return. You say, well, I do that. I'm not expecting them to do anything for me. Serve with nothing expected in return from them or from God. It's tough. And then finally, remove or avoid or run from whatever you want to write down, even the small amount, smallest amount of foolishness in your life. Remove it, avoid it, run from it, whatever you have to do. Get rid of the foolishness in your life. And you say, "Oh, well, I'm not a fool. I'm not calling you a fool. <laughs> but We all have our things, our places, our people, our stuff, whatever it may be, that can lead us into foolishness which will lead us into sin so cut those things out of your life well hold on a second I work with that person how can I cut them out of my life you know exactly what I'm talking about how to be influenced and how not to you may say that there's there's something you just can't avoid well maybe that's the case but you don't have to allow yourself if you're based upon wisdom and upon faith to be influenced by those things let's pray together I've done before, I'll ask you in just a moment to recognize if you specifically are dealing with the need for great wisdom from God himself in a particular situation. I'll tell you, it's based on faith. You will not receive wisdom from God if your faith has not been placed in Jesus Christ. It will not happen. There is no wisdom apart from him. So it begins with faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you say, "I I desperately need wisdom. Things are not the way that I would like them to be or the way I think they should be, and I don't know how to deal with what I'm going through. Yes, I want God to increase my faith. Yes, I want to be okay with being anonymous, never even known if that's what God wants. And yes, I want to be absolutely devoted to Him. I need wisdom. I don't want to embarrass you in any way, but as I've done before, I think it's important for you to recognize and have someone pray for you with the heads bowed and eyes closed of those who are here, if that's you and you say, please, please pray for God to help me, to give me wisdom as I place my faith in Him, won't you just look up this way, lift a hand if you want to, and I'll I'll pray for you. Not to embarrass you, not to call you out. Church, I want you to know there are lots of folks here that are just like you. Need wisdom. Life is real and it hurts. And we're human. We need wisdom from outside ourselves, from God himself. So as I pray this morning, won't you join me in praying for those you may or may not even know that need wisdom this morning. And Let's, as a church, seek God himself for the things we need to get through the ironies of life. Heavenly Father, we, we are so limited. Words can't even describe how incredible you are compared to us. We recognize our own shortcomings and our own limitations. We recognize the failure of our own wisdom. We come to you this morning in faith. Believing, as your word says, that those who need wisdom should ask of God, and you will give it freely, without any hesitation. So in faith, Lord, we ask for your wisdom. For those who have lifted a hand or lifted their eyes this morning, we pray especially for the wisdom that they need to be so practical in their lives, to lift their spirits, to help them to be okay with what they'll face tomorrow, to make decisions, to operate in a godly manner wherever they go. I pray you give them wisdom specifically for what they need pray, Lord, that as a church, we would seek your wisdom. Above any human wisdom that we can trust, we would seek your wisdom and your word for the direction of this church, for the direction of this community, and for our lives as individuals. We thank you, Lord, that you have promised to give us wisdom when we ask for it. We thank you that there is no source of wisdom apart from you. That we only have to go to one place so we come to you in faith. Thank you. Pray Lord that we would help that you would help us now to implement the wisdom that you give, to seek it out through Jesus Christ and through your word, to do what you've asked us to do. We pray in Jesus' name.